Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from the suburbs of Philadelphia, where I teach anatomy and physiology at Bucks County Community College. This episode is about the autonomic nervous system. You might have heard of it as like the fight or flight system. Uh, That's half of it. That's one of the things that the autonomic nervous system does. Uh, It is uh, a pretty important part of maintaining homeostasis and uh, regulating our heart rate, our respiratory rate, and our temperature regulation, and all kinds of stuff that we're going to discuss a little later on. But what I want to start with in this episode is a conversation that I had with a really good friend of mine that I've known for almost 15 years. And his name is Dr. Michael Windelspecht. If you've taken non-majors biology in the last 15 or 20 years, you may know the name Michael Windelspecht because he is the lead author on four different non-majors biology textbooks, uh, which were originated by Sylvia Mater. So if you look at the Mater line of non-majors biology textbooks, you'll see that they've been written by Dr. Michael Windelspecht for about 15 plus years now. He's a really interesting guy, and we met because we're both authors with McGraw-Hill, and um, when I started with them around 2009 or so, and, uh, and that's how Michael and I met. He had already been an author, and we were at a conference together, and uh, he became somewhat of a mentor of mine, um, even if he doesn't realize it, because of all of the amazing things he's done as an educator, has always been really inspiring to me. But one thing I was super interested in is a company he has called Inspire Adventures. And basically, he runs trips for students to a Central American country called Belize, where on these trips, they're learning biology from nature walks or um, fishing expeditions and all kinds of um, activities they do while on these trips where it's an adventure but it's an adventure because you're you're being educated uh, by this. And they, they look at animals. They go to the Belize Zoo, which is a conservation center. There's lots of cool stuff that I learned about Michael Windelspecht in this conversation. And, um, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it as much as I have. So let's start with my conversation with Dr. Michael Windelspecht evolutionary geneticist and a non-majors biology author down in North Carolina. Okay, Dr. Michael Windelspecht, my good friend of almost 15 years. Can't believe that, how quickly that went. Um, so, uh, Michael, tell me about your authoring first. Like, give me a little bit of a background on, on what are your authoring titles with McGraw-Hill? Well, hi, Steve. And I just think that um, uh, it has been 15 years <laughs> and I'm glad to yeah. be here. Okay. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, so I am one of the lead authors. I am the lead author for the Mater Biology series, uh, which means that I have four different books um, under um, under that title. And I'm also the author of the Y Biology series for McGraw-Hill. So it's five projects for them. Um, in that capacity, I basically do all of the authoring but also um, the modernizing of the books, uh, introduction of relevancy-based materials, 
Uh, I've done a lot of work with McGraw-Hill in the past in the design of many of their programs, such as adaptive learning programs or eBooks or things along those lines. So it is a, uh, it's a pretty time-consuming job, um, but what I really like about it is the fact that it really keeps me current in biology because I'm constantly having to read like every day something something new to get inside inside the book. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's such a well-known series and you've been the lead author on them for as long as I've known you. Um, so that's, that's a really, um, that's a really good series. Uh, so many students are learning biology from you. That's really impressive. And you started off like you were, um, you were, uh, in the Navy right out of high school, right? You didn't go right to college. No, I didn't actually. Uh, I was in the Navy, um, took some college courses from university of Maryland and a couple other community colleges, spent about eight years in the Navy. And then even got out from there and didn't go right to college because I was, uh, I became a beverage manager for a hotel, which I know even less about, it seems, than anything else. <laughs> and then after a couple of years, finally went back to school at uh, Michigan State and then University of South Florida and really became, I went as a business major, funny enough, that, that was my thing, and then took a genetics class and just fell in love with it, okay? I was at a community college, and uh, Lansing Community College. And I said, this is it. So I went to Michigan State, okay? And then I went to genetics, okay? And then went down to, you know, did my PhD down at the University of South Florida. And uh, so it was not, this was not a career path that I had initially thought I would be on, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, like, what? what is it? Like John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, right? So exactly. um, from beverage manager to evolutionary geneticist, Exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, hey, so let's just to let all the all the people out there who are listening, who are in school and thinking that especially community college students who think, well, I'm 25, I'm 26. It's too late. Never too late. It's never too late. And now, you know, Dr. Wendell Specht is leading his field. So that is pretty impressive story. I'm mostly interested. I've known so much about you in terms of like your teaching and your authoring, which is so impressive, but I'm really interested in this company you have called Ed Ventures, which I believe uh, you have you do biology uh, kind of almost vacations where you're learning biology in Belize. Is that right? It is. It is a it is a great project. Um, Inspire Adventures is kind of all like one thing now. It's, it's we we run these adventures, which is what we we talk about. But um, this was formed a couple of years ago um, from three of us. Uh, um, one of which is a co-author on one of my books, David Cox. The other one was the digital manager at McGraw-Hill from the books I work on, Eric Weber. And I formed this company to start to build innovative learning experiences, right? We just wanted to have the hand on the experiential learning and things like that. And we started bringing groups or Dave Cox started bringing groups to Belize. And the, what would make this different is lots of times if you do some of the competitors type trips, okay, it's more of you know, we just go down there and we're in Belize. But when you're with us, every day you have an educational activity. But we do like really interesting things. We have trail cameras set out. We capture jaguars and margays and, and jaguarundes. And then we turn that, we look at the data from that. We go out and do uh, fishing um, for lionfish, for example, and then bring the lionfish back in and and then dissect them and see what they're eating. And then we get to eat the lionfish, which is really good. Okay. And then we also have um, turtle monitoring projects. So the students get a, a, a sense of um, these activities um, and science, okay, in this unbelievably pristine, like jungle environment, okay, um, in Belize. 
uh, and that's morphed a lot. Um, now we do virtual tours and we have courses people can take and things like that. But it's been our passion just to have a different learning environment. You know, they were just right there in the jungle with us. I mean, they're literally standing in the jungle and I've got a local guide telling them you can eat this, but not that you shouldn't be sitting on that <laughs> right now. <laughs> okay. Wow. And, you know, people are saying, where's the Jaguar? And they're like, well, the Jaguar knows exactly where we are today because that trail camera has recorded him here every day at this time okay, for the past two weeks. So, you know, wow. we're kind of sitting in his spot, right? That's amazing. So how who goes on these trips? Like, how do you find the participants? Well, that's a, that's a really good that's a really good question. OK, because um, initially these were run from. Uh, Lincoln Land Community College, okay, in Springfield, Illinois, where Dave is a professor of, of biology. And he was running his student groups, and he had some other people around who wanted to take, have student groups go, but he could only take a certain number of students. So he kind of brought me on, okay, to say, okay, you you take the other group. So for the longest time, it was word of mouth, but now we're working with some pretty big groups. Um, the one we're working with a lot now is Talladega College, who has McNair scholars and these McNair, they're, they have to do research projects. So we bring them down once a year to do a biology course, right? But, but they do their own research projects that they propose. So people have contacted us that way. Um, other school groups have just contacted us, but sometimes we also take just independent students. So students could just say, oh, I do want to go to Belize, okay? And we'll say, we're going down with Lincoln Land Community College and we have room for six extra students, right? And they can- okay sign up and go down and then they can they decide their level of participation and almost always they just do everything with us they'll do the trail cameras and they'll do the mayan ruins and stuff do they get college credit for that if you want to get independent studies or something like that we can arrange it um we don't obviously we don't have any credits we give so the school the school usually sets it up we don't we don't do like uh, individual tours anymore where people will say i have like four or five people who want to go like well we want bigger groups uh, birding groups are okay. another thing we work with now. Um, we're adult, what I call the adult groups, the older groups. Okay, um, we're we're trying to run one of those down there now for birding. So yeah, lots of different things, uh, different ways to get involved with that or see it. Um, it's it's really eye opening. Uh, I I've been, I enjoy every single time down there. I learn I learn from the students. You know, just being out there with them. That's amazing. How often are you down there? Um, I am down there. I'm in Belize now four to five times a year. Okay. Um, usually it's, um, at least two or three of those are some sort of trip. Okay. Where we're, we're, I'm bringing a school down or meeting a school there. Um, and then the other, the other two or two to three are usually what I just call work trips. I'll be down there actually in two weeks working with the zoo. Um, the Belize zoo is one of our big, uh, one of our big partners. Um, and, be working with the zoo to produce some videos for them. Okay. Uh, of the animals and stuff. We've been working with them for a number of years. Our company has a huge giving back component. So whenever we do anything in Belize, we generate income and money and give it to our partner. So, and these are conservation partners like the Belize zoo, the Belize Raptor center, tobacco key Marine station. Okay. Um, so they get, they get financial support. They also get us being there. Okay. Um, uh, nice. and so it's a, yeah, we're very, very happy with that. Yeah. Where exactly is Belize? It is in Central America. Okay. It is surrounded um, on, on, if you imagine, if you, if you're in Cuba and you went directly West, you'd run right into it. Okay. Um, it's just South of like Cozumel, very small country surrounded on two sides by um, Guatemala. 
and then on the top by Mexico. Uh, only about 300,000 people in there. The reason why I love Belize is the fact that it used to be British Honduras. Okay, so everybody in Belize speaks English as a primary language. It helps to know Spanish because we're in Central America. But, um, and the currency is tied directly to the U.S. dollar, which means $1 U.S. is always $2 Belize, no matter where you're at in the country. Oh, wow. So it makes it really easy for people to move groups in and out. We don't have to worry about a huge language barrier, okay, um, which years ago I went to Costa Rica. And at that time it was, it isn't anymore, of course, in Costa Rica, but it, it was a little bit more of a barrier. But I know enough Spanish that I was fine with it. Um, but it's a, it's a nice little country, very uh, eco-friendly. They have more, I think they have one of the highest ratios of total land mass and then like areas are in conservation. Like they have more areas in conservation acres in conservation the percent wise in almost any other country oh i love that and so yeah i mean taking away that that um that language barrier really kind of alleviates an obstacle for a lot of travelers um yeah you 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 probably remember that i used to go to thailand for about five weeks every summer and and um you know that that is a pretty big barrier when you're in like a big city like bangkok um there's enough people who speak English that you can you can get by, but but we did have to learn a significant amount of Thai to really make our time a little bit easier there. Um, so, but that's that's actually a nice draw for for students knowing that they're they're not going to have that barrier. But that sounds like an amazing program. It is, and it's really nice for them yeah. too, Steve, because they, um, I mean, because if they're practicing learning Spanish or something, it's a great country to do it in, right? I mean. Just because everybody there also speaks Spanish, right? So they're, they're all... mm -hmm. the program's really, really nice. Um, we're really very happy with what we've been able to do with it. We're expanding out more into a lot of different things off our website. Um, during COVID, we built virtual tours because we couldn't travel. So we've offered right. virtual tours from everything from kindergarten groups to uh, retirement homes, <laughs> okay, uh, where we, we take them on a tour of the zoo. Okay, it's a live interactive tour right in the zoo. They ask questions. It goes back and forth. We have activities for them and. So that was a big that was that was a, a big deal. It helped out the zoos a lot because they had no people coming to visit them and they needed cash. Okay. So and it helped out the you know the groups here too. So uh it's it's a it's a fun, fun little company. We're, in, we're really enjoying it. That's fantastic. I I love that idea. That that experiential learning for people, like the doing their own collecting and and research or or experimentation, like the dissecting and then getting to eat the fish that you dissect. So you're not just like you're not just taking them out of the water just to dissect them and throw them out. I mean that's that's a nice that's that's a nice little plus. I love that. Um, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, when's the next student group going? Um, I think we're gonna have we have a big one going in March. That's the McNair Foundation from Talladega College, um, which is an HBC, and they have a big grant from McNair. So their 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 senior students in biology have to design a project. And we go down and work actually out of a um, uh, out of one of their national parks, their newer national park called Five Blues Lake, which is absolutely gorgeous. It's in the middle of nowhere. But they'll do like turtle trapping, jaguar camera, uh, jaguar monitoring. And when I say jaguar monitoring, it's actually monitoring for everything in the area. We get tapirs, we get crazy things like um, uh, that that you wouldn't even know what they are, like cursows, birds. I, what I find fun about this is we get stuff on the camera, Steve, and, I'd be, and Susan would say, what is it? I'm like, I have no idea. I have never seen something like that before yeah. in my life. <laughs> yeah. And I said, but we have these reference books and this is what a scientist does, right? Yeah. It's, it's so much fun to them, you know, to do that, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, I've always told my students the most powerful thing a scientist can say is, I don't know. Exactly. It's been super fun to catch up with you. Um, we haven't seen each other in a few years, uh, at least since before COVID. Um, so um, we used to see each other at least a couple times a year at different McGraw-Hill events. And uh, it's it's been a lot of fun to catch up and learn more about the uh, adventures. Uh, so anyway, uh, Michael, Dr. Wendelspeck, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Um, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Steve. It was such a great time, and thank you for all the stuff you do. I mean, all the contributions you've made over the years to education, okay, especially in video production and content and everything. And really, it's been it's great to see you again and talk to you because I've always really, really respected everything that you, you can put together. So it's going to be fun to hear this one, too. <laughs> it, is, it is mutual. I don't know if you know this, but you, are, you have been one of my mentors uh, since day one when I started working with McGraw-Hill, and, and um, it's been absolutely priceless to have known you. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. I can't express enough how much Michael Wendelspecht has meant to me and my career and also as an amazing friend. So I am putting links to his textbooks and projects, including Inspire Adventures, in the show description so please make sure you check that out if you are interested it is such an amazing program and he is one of the best textbook authors in the world also make sure you check out michael wendelspect's new podcast the inspire adventures podcast he does this with eric weber and dave cox and they talk about everything from Jaguar conservation, raptor conservation, beehives, all the way from Central America in Belize to the American heartland. And they're going to focus on listening to experts talk about wildlife and wildlife conservation. And I highly recommend you take a look anywhere you get your podcasts for the Inspire Adventures podcast. I'll put a link to their website showing the podcast in the show notes. So having said all that, I think it's time that we get into the autonomic nervous system so that you can find out what fight or flight means and what rest and digest means. So let's get going. So now that we've been discussing the nervous system for a while, you're familiar with the typical things that the nervous system is responsible for, like making conscious decisions and uh, responding to our sensory experiences. Uh, we've also seen the reflexive movements of our musculoskeletal system in the spinal cord unit when we talked about um, reflexes. But what about the unconscious things that our nervous system has to do and the responses by your visceral organs? Like when your heart rate goes up or goes down or your blood pressure goes up, your body temperature changes, when the conditions call for it. Uh, these are reflexes that are visceral, not somatic. So they're affecting your visceral organs. And the autonomic nervous system, or ANS, is responsible for those. So it starts out with a regular reflex arc, but this time we call it a visceral reflex arc. And it has the same five components that a somatic reflex has. It uses sensory receptors... It uses sensory neurons from all over the nervous system. 
Uh, it uses an integrating center in the central nervous system, which would be the hypothalamus of the diencephalon. And, and then it uses motor neurons and effectors, right? So the motor neurons carry the nerve signal for the desired result to effectors, which are the tissues that carry out the desired result. And that's what makes the autonomic nervous system a little bit different because even though it's still using the same sensory receptors and sensory neurons we see everywhere else, the autonomic nervous system has its own motor divisions. So it uses its own motor neurons and it's split into two separate motor divisions. The first one is called the sympathetic division and the second one is the parasympathetic division. And they carry the motor nerve signals to the effectors that are going to carry out the desired results from a visceral reflex. So those effectors are tissues, organs, vessels, glands. Um, they're all kinds of things. And uh, we're going to see changes in blood pressure, changes in digestive motility, the chemical composition of our body fluids. All of these things are what we're going to see regulated by the autonomic nervous system. Let's start with talking about the sympathetic motor division and the parasympathetic motor division and the differences between them uh, and what makes them different from the somatic nervous system. So the sympathetic motor division is associated with activities that favor energy expenditure, like increasing your heart rate, your respiratory rate, and sweating. Uh, while the parasympathetic motor division, that's associated with activities that favor energy storage, like an increase in your digestive processes, or a decrease in heart rate and respiratory rate, right? So we think of the sympathetic division as what we call our fight or flight, right? So this is the one where uh, you might have to spend a lot of energy either defending yourself or running from a potential danger, right? So that's the fight or flight division. And then the parasympathetic is the rest and digest. That's when you're kind of Things are a little slower for you. You're maybe sleeping, you're relaxing, there's no danger, and you're in energy storage mode. What makes them different from the somatic motor neurons, where you have a typical motor pathway being central nervous system, synapses with motor neurons, uh, and then those motor neurons leave the spinal cord, carry nerve signals to an effector, and then it stimulates that effector, like a skeletal muscle. But in the autonomic nervous system, we have a little bit of a different path to take. Yes, there is a synapse with motor neurons in the central nervous system. But then the, there's two separate motor neurons that need to be taken to get the nerve signal to the effector. So the first motor neuron leaves the central nervous system. And then it synapses with another motor neuron outside of the central nervous system. That synapse takes place in what's called an autonomic ganglion. A ganglion is in the peripheral nervous system is where you have the cell bodies and dendrites of neurons. So the axon terminals of the first motor neuron synapse with the cell bodies and dendrites of the second motor neuron in the autonomic ganglion. There are several autonomic ganglia throughout your body. There are sympathetic ganglia 
and there are parasympathetic ganglia. And so we have specific names for these motor neurons. We have the one that comes first, so it's before the ganglion. So we call that the preganglionic neuron. And then we have the one that is second and carries the nerve signal away from the ganglion, and we call that the postganglionic neuron. So that's a really important distinction uh, because we need two motor neurons to get the signal to where it needs to go versus the somatic nervous system where only one single motor neuron is needed to get to the effector. Now, it doesn't matter which division we're looking at, sympathetic or parasympathetic, but the axons of preganglionic neurons are always myelinated, and the postganglionic axons are always unmyelinated. Now, remember, preganglionic is the one that comes right out of the central nervous system, and the postganglionic is the one that comes out of the ganglion. The autonomic nervous system utilizes involuntary and oftentimes unconscious reflex arcs to help maintain homeostasis. These reflexes are called autonomic or visceral reflexes, and their effectors are typically, like I said before, organs, glands, and smooth muscle. Some examples of those organs are the heart, the smooth muscle of the digestive and respiratory tracts, or sweat glands. Now, depending on the effector, both motor divisions are capable of being excitatory or inhibitory, and most tissues have innervation from both divisions, sympathetic and parasympathetic. We call that dual innervation. Not every tissue has dual innervation, but most do. And again, we always think of the sympathetic division as the excitatory one because it's the one that, that is active during times of emergency and excitement and exercise. Um, but that's not always the case. Sometimes the sympathetic division is inhibitory because it can innervate things like your kidneys and slow them down during those times so your body's not focusing on urine production when you need to be running from a potential threat. So the sympathetic division isn't always excitatory to all organs. It's excitatory to the organs that need to be active during those times, but inhibitory to the ones that need to be slowed down during those times. And the parasympathetic division can do the same thing. The parasympathetic division is excitatory to your digestive system because it increases digestive activity, but it's inhibitory to your heart. The parasympathetic division slows down your heart because you're in rest and digest mode. So those are really important distinctions about the autonomic nervous system that makes it different from the regular somatic divisions of the nervous system. All right, let's take a look at the parasympathetic division, which is our rest and digest division that kind of favors um, energy storage. So this is active during the slower times of our body when there's like not so much excitement. And it has a lot of unique features. Uh, for one, it's also known as the craniosacral division because the neurosomas of the parasympathetic preganglionic neurons are only found in the brainstem and the gray matter of sacral spinal segments two, three, and four. From the brainstem, the parasympathetic preganglionic axons are located within four bilateral cranial nerves. They're cranial nerve three, cranial nerve seven, cranial nerve nine, 
and cranial nerve 10. So those are otherwise known as oculomotor, which is 3, facial, which is 7, glossopharyngeal, which is 9, and the vagus nerve, which is 10. The vagus nerve actually carries about 80% of all parasympathetic nerve fibers. So that's a huge responsibility for the vagus nerve. And it contributes to four different autonomic plexuses. Now the branches of the vagus nerve branch out into these autonomic plexuses, these bundles of neurons that then innervate most of our thoracic and abdominal organs. Those plexuses are the cardiac plexus for the heart, the pulmonary plexus for the respiratory organs, the esophageal plexus for the esophagus and the stomach, and the abdominal aortic plexus for most of our abdominal organs. Now, keep in mind that the sympathetic axons and sensory neurons also contribute to these plexuses, but they do not interact with each other neurologically. All right, so the preganglionic axons of S2 to S4, those sacral nerves, are called the pelvic splanchnic nerves, and they merge to form the hypogastric plexus. Nerves that come out of the hypogastric plexus innervate the external genitals and the urinary and reproductive organs of the pelvic cavity. Now remember that the preganglionic neurons are myelinated, and in the parasympathetic division, they're relatively long and travel either directly to or very close to their effectors before they reach their autonomic ganglia. So there are three different presentations of parasympathetic ganglia. In the first, the parasympathetic ganglia are found within the wall of the effector itself, and they're called intramural ganglia. So the neuron, the preganglionic neuron, goes all the way to the effector and then synapses with the postganglionic neuron right there in the wall of that organ. Intramural literally means inside the wall. So you might have heard of intramural sports, right? So intramural sports are sports teams that all go to the same school, for example. So kind of inside these walls is where the competition versus playing other schools. So that's where intramural comes from. Second, we see parasympathetic ganglia that are very close to the effector, but not quite inside. These are called terminal ganglia. Intramural and terminal ganglia are utilized by both the vagus and the splanchnic nerves. Finally, in the head and neck, cranial nerves 3, 7, and 9 lead to four specific named bilateral ganglia that are close, but not as close to their effectors as the terminal ganglia. Cranial nerve 3, or oculomotor nerve, leads to the ciliary ganglion posterior to the eye. One branch of the facial nerve leads to the pterygopalatine ganglion, which is inferior to the orbit, while another leads to the submandibular ganglion, not far from the mandibular angle. And finally, the glossopharyngeal nerve leads to the otic ganglion, which is anterior and inferior to the ear. The parasympathetic ganglia being so close to the effectors has two significant ramifications. One, the unmyelinated postganglionic axons end up being relatively short compared to the sympathetic division. 
and two, since the ganglion is so close to the effector, the preganglionic axon has little room to branch off and innervate more than one effector. So the influence of each preganglionic neuron is limited to a very small number of effectors. The functional role of the parasympathetic division is to inhibit the activities that expend a lot of energy and facilitate those that tend to result in the storage of energy. This is the division that's active when there is little excitement and you're not being very physically active. You'll often see the mnemonic S-L-U-D-D to describe the parasympathetic division because it stands for salivation, lacrimation, urination, digestion, and defecation because those are the main activities that are active when the parasympathetic division is dominant. All right, so let's talk about the sympathetic division, which we know is nicknamed the fight-or-flight division. And this one you sometimes hear of the four E situations. And that means that the sympathetic division is mostly active during times of excitement, exercise, embarrassment, and emergency. Again, these are the times in your bodies when you are favoring energy expenditure. So remember, the parasympathetic division we also called the craniosacral division because the preganglionic neurons emerged from the brainstem and sacral spinal cord. But the sympathetic division is known as the thoracolumbar division because all the preganglionic neurons originate from spinal cord regions from T1 to L2, the thoracolumbar divisions. From the anterior horn of gray matter, the preganglionic axons travel through the anterior root to the spinal nerve. Now remember, when we talked about the spinal nerves, we saw that they had two small branches called the rami communicantes, or communicating rami. One of those branches is called the white ramus because myelinated preganglionic axons exit the spinal nerve through there. The other is called the gray ramus because it consists of unmyelinated postganglionic axons leaving the ganglia on their way to their effectors. The sympathetic ganglia, unlike the parasympathetic ganglia, are relatively close to the spinal cord. So the myelinated preganglionic sympathetic axons are short, while the unmyelinated postganglionic sympathetic axons are long. So we have a much different presentation or orientation of the ganglia for the sympathetic division versus the parasympathetic. So instead of the ganglia all being right at the effectors, the ganglia, which is where the preganglionic and postganglionic sympathetic neurons synapse with each other, is actually right next to the spinal column in most cases. And it's arranged in this chain that we can see oriented vertically up and down the length of the spinal column. And we call that the sympathetic trunk ganglia, also known as the sympathetic chain of ganglia. And there's two of them, one on the left and one on the right. They kind of look like two strings of pearls lined up along the vertical axis on each side of the vertebral column. And where the pearls would be are these round dilations where the neurosomas of some postganglionic sympathetic axons are. The strings that are between the pearls are mostly axons of preganglionic neurons that haven't yet synapsed in the ganglion. So even though the sympathetic preganglionic axons only emerge from T1 to L2, 
the chain of ganglia extends all the way up to the cervical region and all the way down to the sacrococcygeal region. So this way, all body regions can get sympathetic innervation, not just parts of the body that are innervated by spinal nerves that come out of T1 to L2. Rather, what happens is the preganglionic neurons come out of T1 to L2, but then they can travel all the way up or all the way down depending on where they need to go. Now, even though they all enter the chain of ganglia, not all preganglionic axons synapse there. And there are three different paths or routes these axons take to leave the sympathetic chain. Now, in addition to that, one preganglionic sympathetic axon can branch out to synapse with several different neurons in the ganglia meaning that each one can influence several different effectors, unlike the parasympathetic division. Conversely, one postganglionic sympathetic neuron can receive synapses from several preganglionic axons, meaning one effector can be influenced by several spinal cord segments. So it's not as simple to trace back innervation as it is in the somatic nervous system. The first route these axons take to leave the chain is the spinal nerve route. Some preganglionic axons synapse with a neuron in the chain of ganglia. Then the postganglionic axon of that ganglionic neuron exits the chain via the gray ramus communicanti and into the spinal nerve, then onto its branches, and then onto its effectors. So that's the first route, the spinal nerve route. The second is the sympathetic nerve route. After synapsing, the postganglionic axons exit the chain directly via sympathetic nerves, which then form nerve plexuses. And some of those nerve plexuses wrap around each carotid artery and are called the carotid plexus. Their branches innervate effectors in the head. Remember, the carotid arteries are in your neck. Meanwhile, others form the cardiac and pulmonary plexuses, which also include nerve fibers from the parasympathetic division, and they innervate the heart and respiratory organs. Third, we see the splanchnic nerve route. Some of the preganglionic axons emerging from T5 to T12 enter the sympathetic chain but don't synapse in it. Instead, these axons continue through and exit via nerves called splanchnic nerves. And those splanchnic nerves travel to and synapse in a second kind of sympathetic ganglia called the prevertebral ganglia or collateral ganglia. These are not lined up on either side of the spinal column. Instead, these ganglia are found anterior to the abdominal aorta, which is a large artery in your abdominal cavity. And they contribute to a plexus of nerves called the abdominal aortic plexus. The major prevertebral ganglia are the ciliac ganglia, the superior mesenteric ganglion, and the inferior mesenteric ganglion. These ganglia align with and are named for arteries branching off that abdominal aorta. Some preganglionic axons leave the sympathetic chain and head to the adrenal glands, which are just superior to the kidneys. Sometimes we call them the suprarenal glands because they're superior to the kidneys. They penetrate the outer shell of the adrenal gland, which is called the adrenal cortex, and then they synapse in the center portion, which is called the adrenal medulla. There, they synapse with postganglionic neurons in the adrenal medulla that have no axons or dendrites.
These synapses stimulate the postganglionic neurons to release the hormones epinephrine and norepinephrine into the bloodstream. These are also known as adrenaline and noradrenaline, and they stimulate the heart to increase its rate and force of contraction. They dilate the airways to the lungs. They dilate the pupils of your eyes, and they stimulate and increase blood pressure by constricting blood vessels, not to mention many other responses that you're going to hear about when we have episodes on the endocrine system. So the sympathetic nervous division, or sympathetic division of the autonomic nervous system, is, remember, our excitement. Our heart's going up, our breathing rate's going up, we're going to sweat, we're going to increase the blood flow to our muscles, we're going to dilate our pupils, we're going to be ready to defend ourselves or to run and flee. And that's where the sympathetic nervous division comes in to protect us from a threat. All right, I think that's enough for one episode of the autonomic nervous system. There's a couple of more things I do want to discuss. Um, Specifically, I do want to talk about the way both motor divisions innervate different organs, which we call dual innervation. Uh, I also want to talk about some of the specific reactions that occur uh, from each motor division and also the neurotransmitters that are used. So there's still a lot more to talk about with the autonomic nervous system, so I'm going to save that for another episode as I think we've gone on pretty long. I want to give a big thank you once again to Dr. Michael Windelspecht for joining me on today's episode and talking about writing textbooks and Inspire Adventures. I put a link to his website in the show notes in case you want to learn more. And thank you again for listening. And if you haven't already, please remember to rate and review the podcast. And if you like it, tell everyone you know. You know as well as I do that everyone loves getting unsolicited podcast recommendations, even from complete strangers. I hope you look forward to the next episode as much as I do, and that this podcast is helping you achieve that be or better that you need in A&P. Good luck, and I'll see you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology, already being used at several colleges and universities. The music you've been hearing comes with my paid accounts with Camtasia and ProductionCrate.com assets.